welcome to Sage and Spirit, a podcast designed to nourish your mind, body, soul, and spirit. I'm your host, Anna Claire Lottie, and I'm so grateful you're here. In this holistic wellness podcast, I'll be having candid conversations with others, exploring topics such as healing with plants, food as medicine, earth connection, spirituality, conscious entrepreneurship, and so much more. Thank you for being here and sharing in this journey with me. Hello, and welcome to episode 18 of Sage and Spirit. I hope this episode finds you all doing well and staying healthy wherever you are in the world. And here in Appalachia, it's late summer. We're quickly seeing fall approaching. The weather is starting to shift just a little bit and the wheel turns once more. Today, I'm speaking with fellow herbalist, Sean O'Donohue. And before I get into a little bit about what Sean and I are talking about today, just want to give a very quick reminder that all of the information shared on this podcast is meant for entertainment and educational purposes only. No information is meant to treat, diagnose, cure, or prevent any illness. And I always recommend that you consult with a trusted healthcare professional before making any changes in your daily protocol or supplements or herbs or anything else that you are interested in adding. For today's episode, Sean and I are discussing his new book, The Forest Reminds Us Who We Are connecting to the living medicine of wild plants. I met Sean a few years back when I was working with uh, an herbalist's symposium and Sean was one of the teachers and it was such a pleasure to work with Sean and to get to see him teach and learn a little bit more about where he's coming from. Uh, A note on Sean, Sean Padraig O'Donohue is an herbalist, writer, and teacher, and an initiated priest in two traditions. He lives in the mountains of Western Maine, and Sean's approach to healing weaves together the insights of traditional Western herbalism and contemporary science. He regards physical, spiritual, and emotional healing as deeply intertwined. Prior to becoming an herbalist, Sean was a political organizer in movements for peace, human rights, and global economic justice, and a freelance journalist documenting the human and ecological impacts of U.S. policies in Latin America. He grew up near Boston, a short distance from where his great-grandparents first landed when they arrived from Ireland. Since childhood, Sean has been an avid student of Irish history and folklore. He graduated from Dartmouth College in 1996 with a degree in English literature and creative writing. Sean's book is really just such a beautiful contribution to the world and to where we are in time and space right now. As it says on the back of the book, Sean takes readers on a journey through some of the ways our bodies, minds, and spirits have become unbalanced. O'Donohue blends lyrical, mythic, and scientific understandings to help us appreciate the potent power of plant medicine and to remind us that plants are our 
our wild kindred with the power to connect us with the life within and around us. Sean also includes simple rituals to deepen our connections to our own bodies, the land, and new and familiar plant allies. This is an ideal book for anyone who's new to herbalism, as well as seasoned herbalists, naturopaths, body workers, psychologists, and just really anyone who wants to have a better understanding of themselves and the world around them, I would say. In today's episode, we delve deep into the why of Sean writing this book, what inspired him to bring this information together and to share it with the world at this time. Sean speaks so richly about his background and his studies into his bloodline and ancestry and learning more about his ancestors. He talks of a time when he prayed to get lost and had a moment of just breaking open. He talks about Usnia and the green man and the power of the plants and what it means to really form relationships with the plants around us to deepen our understanding of ourselves and our innate connection with nature. This is such a really just rich episode, I feel like, and I thoroughly enjoyed this conversation with Sean, and I really hope that you all enjoy it just as much as I did. Hey, Sean, how are you today? Welcome to Sage and Spirit. Oh, wow. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for being here. I'm really looking forward to our conversation today. And it was really exciting for me to kind of be on social media a few weeks ago and to see this new book that you are introducing out into the world. And I think that um, it's such a beautiful release for these times that we're living in. And it's almost sort of like a, a guidebook for how to reconnect with the world around us. So I'm really excited to dive into this topic with you today. And I'd love if you might be able to start off with just telling us a little bit about who you are and where you're coming from in regards to where you have ended up at this point in your life. Absolutely. Yeah, so I grew up in Massachusetts at the edge of the suburbs where there was still woods enough for a child to wander. <laughs> and um, interestingly, not that far from where my great-grandparents landed when they came from Ireland. Um, and we discovered only in the past few years that um, on both my father's side and my mother's side, there were ancestors we didn't know about who were among the early people in the town that I grew up in, including one who lived across the forest, um, across the swamp from the house that I grew up in, who was tried as a witch and said, yes, I am. Wow. And uh, that um, was such an interesting confirmation of things that I picked up intuitively uh, that Swamp is full of skunk cabbage, and skunk cabbage plants can grow to be up to a thousand years old. And that skunk cabbage swamp was so much a part of my childhood, and I always felt presences that were alive there and felt the other world a little bit closer there. But um, I didn't really 
then for decades and decades, I didn't really think about it. And then when skunk cabbage began being a medicine that called to me and I went uh, to connect with those plants and dig some of their roots in midwinter, which is when you need to. It's right, uh, it's actually towards the end of winter when the skunk cabbage actually generates heat and melts the ice using the same kind of metabolism that the bears that eat it use to warm themselves up as they're waking. And so you have to go out there if you're, you're going to dig the roots um, while everything around it is still frozen and you and get elbow deep in 32 degree in 33 degree water <laughs> in order to pull up the roots. And when I was working with them, um, and of course taking them very sparingly because they're such ancient plants, but when I was working with them, they told me that it had been a long time since anyone had spoken with them and that a long time ago there had been someone else who came up there and connected with them. So I'm imagining that was likely um, Mary Paul, my or Mary Tyler rather, uh, my mother's distant ancestor who we didn't know about. I, nobody in the family on either side had had any connection with the town since the 1700s <laughs> and we just, it just happened to be where I grew up. And in I came into this world feeling the ways in which I don't fit into this culture. I didn't understand at the time because neurobiology hadn't and psychology hadn't really pr progressed to the point where people could understand that I was autistic. I went to dozens of specialists who looked at all of my individual traits individual, individually and tried to come up with ways of helping me navigate the world that mostly didn't work very well because they're mostly just repeating the things that I wasn't particularly inclined to over and over again um, until they stuck, which mostly they didn't. But I felt a deep connection with stories of other worlds and with the stories of my Irish ancestry. Um, and I grew up sort of at a tr transitional point in my family. In my early childhood, the last Irish speakers in our family, until now, because my sister and I are both now studying the language together, but the last pe people in our family who grew up speaking Irish were old when I was young. And the very first music I ever heard played live was my great uncle Jiggs, the one of those last Gallagher's in the family, um, playing uh, music on his squeeze box in his driveway when I was maybe two years old. And my grandparents took me there to give my parents a break. But as I grew older, um, by the time I was five, I had a sense of the world being in peril in a lot of ways. I remember um, learning about endangered species by watching a PBS documentary about ospreys. And they were talking about the DDT weakening their eggshells and just being heartbroken by, the, by that. And that staying with me for days and writing a poem about ospreys that ended with the line, fly high old fellow, your days are numbered. And just last night, I got beautiful confirmation of how much when 
we change our orientation towards things, things in the world can change because I was out on the beautiful cove where I live watching an osprey make this the beautiful corkscrew spiral dive down they make to catch fish and understanding that when we we move the threats to health, whether those be to ecological health or to personal health, um, what's alive in the world comes in to begin to bring healing. But I became, and I also grew up spending summertime visiting, often visiting my grandparents in the Adirondacks where my grandfather taught me the names of trees and my grandmother took me out to gather wild berries. And I've had my first introduction to the mountains, which I realize are now the mountain chain that I live in because the Adirondacks and the Blue Hills of Maine are both part of the Appalachians. And someone I love, uh, when I moved back to Maine a few years ago, told me something I hadn't known before, which is that when those mountains reach the sea, they go underwater and come back up as the hills of Ireland and Wales and Scotland. And so all along this ancestral line of ancient granite flowing. But um, as I got older, and because of being uncoordinated and therefore bad at sports and being socially awkward and having really severe asthma, I felt really disconnected from people around me and really disconnected with my body and developed a story sort of rooted in my childhood understanding of Catholic theology that my body was broken and every, all the focus needed to be on my mind. And so I disconnected from my body entirely and to the extent, and I threw myself full bore into activism. And um, because I felt a world in peril and I wanted to try to do what I could to transform that. And followed that path until its breaking point, which was actually my physical and mental breaking point where in my thirties, uh, my physical health was a complete wreck. I was one point on the, uh, away from being diagnosed as diabetic and uh, my asthma had progressed badly. My depression was really pulling me under. And I had left the church for the second time <laughs> a few years earlier and had begun on a pagan path that spoke of the life in the world that made me remember some of the sense of wonder that I had as a child, but it was still an abstraction to me. And everything in my life felt like it was going in the wrong direction. So I prayed to be broken open. And I ended up going to Oaxaca in Southern Mexico in the wake of an uprising there where the military police had come in and were occupying the entire state and meeting with people who were hiding in church basements and meeting with people in a village up in the hills that had resisted um, being overtaken and feeling a life in the land and the people there that was really deeply calling to me and trying to figure out what was missing for me 
And there were two things that people there spoke of over and over again. And the first was their ancestors and the way that their ancestors had lived through so many waves of pain and kept their ways alive. And the second was about the land and the plants. And they were speaking particularly about the corn. And so this was the first place in the world where corn was grown. And for the Mesotech and Zapotec peoples, corn is at the center of their identity and their lives. And I heard them speaking with great grief about how the genetically modified corn and the spread of the pollen by wind was threatening their old varieties. But then they said something that really struck me and I received it on two different levels and the dissonance really struck me. So they were talking about the elders could walk through the rows and when the seedlings were beginning to grow, could recognize which plants belonged and which plants didn't. And were preserving the, the ancient corn by pulling up the plants that didn't belong. And my intellectual self, my talking self, my colonized self said, oh, well, that's a really beautiful story and I wish it were true. And uh, but deeper in me, I felt the truth of that. And I felt the reality of that. And I felt that this was in some ways a glimpse of what was missing. And I was also struck in that moment by the fact that I had come thinking that I was coming in solidarity to try to help, but that really there had also been the part of me that was another conquistador, a conquistador of hope, a conquistador of meaning, and that I needed to come back and find that hope and that meaning in something here. And the night I got back, I went to a dinner party in Boston, which is not something I would be well suited to on a normal day, much less just off the plane from a war zone. But nevertheless, I happened there. And there was one person in the room who felt very different to me than everybody else there. And eventually we began to speak and she told me that she was an herbalist and she was learning to listen to the voices of the plants. And I told her about what the people in Oaxaca had told me about the corn. And I felt something shift really profoundly. And then I went home to Maine where I was living at the time and where I'm living again after some sojourns in other places. And, um, uh, I promptly got sick. Um, I, my lungs had always been my vulnerable organ and lungs, of course, are an organ that holds grief. And I got bronchitis that became pneumonia and the medications I was being given were doing very little for me, except that the steroids were making me not be able to stand being in my own skin. Mm -hmm. And on New Year's Eve, that herbalist called me out of the blue. She had found my phone number um, and, um, after we talked for a while and we had hung up, she called back a moment later and said, you know, I was listening to your breathing on the phone and I heard, and this herb came forward who wants to help you. And her name is Ella Campaign and she has a deep resinous root and a bright yellow flower. And so, and she helps to pull up what you're holding in your lungs. 
So I went to the natural food store there in Bangor and picked up my very first ounce of helicampane tincture. And when I got home and I took the first few drops of it, not only did my breathing begin to shift sooner than can be, than could be pharmacologically explained, but I felt that story that my body was broken and hopeless, completely unraveling. And even though I was sick, I went out to the forest with my dog and I felt myself breathing deeper than I had when I was well. And when I walked deeper into the forest, I began breathing in the, the scent of the spruce and the scent of the pine and feeling it working its way in me and feeling myself connecting with the forest and suddenly understanding that this idea that the world was alive was not an abstraction, it was a reality. And that was how the plants began working with me. Wow, what a beautiful story, Sean. Thank you so much for sharing that. Um, I feel like there's so much medicine just embedded in that story, the medicine of, of place and of your ancestry and, and how that spoke to you and, and how interesting that you were walking through this, this swampland and forest at such a young age and feeling a particular pull and draw. And I think a lot of times, many of us experience similar sensations and we don't always understand why or where they're coming from. And in your case, it sounds like there was a very deep lineage and connection to the land and your ancestors. Um, and that it's kind of kept pulling you back over the years for greater revealings of yourself and, and your story and your path. Um, and, and to be tuned in at such a young age and to, you know, I think that a lot of us, when we're really young, if we feel certain things like that or certain callings, we certainly don't really understand because we're not always given the um, sort of the context or, you know, a lot of times adults maybe will say, oh, well, that's nice or kind of shrug it off in a certain way. But um, I'm really inspired by your story and how you have found your way on this path throughout these different experiences in your life, throughout your travels. And such a beautiful story about the corn, too. And I really love what you said about how you received that information in two different ways on two different levels and that part of it sort of invoked this feeling within that, you know, you knew what you were there to learn about um, in that case, and also to learn from the people of that land and what that experience was like for them and, um, and what they were still holding on to despite all of their trials throughout the years and despite colonialism and everything else, um, what was still important to them. So um, just kind of taking all that in and, and feeling that, um, it feels very rich and profound. And I also love your mention of Ella campaign. It's so funny. Um, as I was walking into the space, my recording space here, um, I happened to notice there is an Ella campaign that has just started blooming, um, right mm -hmm. outside the door here. And, um, I knew that it was growing there last year. I'm in sort of a, a new place. Uh, we moved here about a year and a half ago and the landlords at the time had told me there's an Ella campaign 
Ella campaign plant over there, but that was sort of in the winter and I didn't see it. And then last year I only saw a few of the leaves and this year it sent up a flower stalk and it's got four flowers on it right now. And it's just sort of beckoning to me. Um, mm. and I just find that really interesting that you spoke of this plant and also um, that it, it tends to be for some people, really good medicine for these times that we're living through, um, where we're seeing a lot of our grief come, come up or where we're realizing that we've been holding on to grief and we're trying to find different ways to navigate that. So, um, I just love how all of that is tying together and, and just your story about how you came to this path. So you have this new book out and it is called the forest reminds us who we are. And I would love if you wanted to speak to that a little bit and um, maybe just your inspiration for writing this book and what that process was like for you. Absolutely. Um, so in many ways, um, it begins where the story I was telling, that I was just telling ends, which is that um, it really was in that forest that I began to understand who I am for the first time. And about six months after that first encounter with Hella Campaign, I was going through another time of everything being broken open. Um, my The job I had been working ran out of funding, so I was going to have to move. Um, a, an on and off relationship I had been in that had taught me much and broken me open uh, came to an end in that form, although it would come back beautifully as a deep friendship a few years later. Um, and I felt like nothing I was doing made sense again, so I prayed to get lost <laughs> and walking on familiar paths Sure enough, I got lost. I started following all the places where the Usnia lichen had fallen. And I got deep into the forest and was suddenly standing entirely encircled by pines with Usnia on the ground in front of me. And I closed my eyes for a moment and I felt the Usnia begin to kind of reach its tendrils through the cracked open places in my heart, for which I'm really grateful because when we're broken open, there are cracks in us. And sometimes what comes through those cracks can be very dark and very unsuited to where we might go. And sometimes it can be the brightness and exactly the medicine we need. So. Yeah, I love that um, piece that Leonard Cohen says about there is the crack and everything. It's where the light comes in. But my prudent, magical self says, well, yeah, but it's also where the dark comes in. <laughs> it depends what you're calling through. And it's I an was important really great. distinction. Absolutely. <laughs> and uh, yeah, just because something comes from a realm you're not familiar with doesn't necessarily mean that it's what's wisest and most healthy. But I was lucky that I think because of the sincerity of the prayer in my heart, it was Usnia that answered. And reaching through all those tendrils, feeling all those tendrils reaching through me and transforming me and beginning to see the face of the green man that 
enigmatic face of the man with leaves for hair, with leafy hair and beard that shows up carved into the cathedrals of Europe. And understanding that all my life I had waged war against my own inherent power because I didn't like how power was being used in the world. But Yusnia telling me that in doing that, I was giving over control of my power at everything I thought I was resisting. And so that became a big transformation. It also became the point when I began to realize that I didn't need that I wasn't going to be going to intermediaries for the, for the plants that I needed to be going to them directly. And the work of Matthew Wood and Stephen Buhner really helped me contextualize the experiences I was having. And then um, that brought me into herbal practice. And after several years, um, the idea for this book began developing and it developed first um, talking with other people about what's the purpose of healing and hearing over and over again, this idea that, you know, and again, there was this dissonance where um, there was an idea that I had spoken myself very often that seemed to make sense to me that the healer's job is to do what the person is asking for, to serve the client. And that made sense to me at a certain rational level, but I felt something missing from that. And then I sort of got to the question of, well, what if your client is a lobbyist for an oil company who can't sleep because they're having nightmares about birds covered in oil and they're coming to you because they want those nightmares to end so they can sleep better and be a better lobbyist? What's your responsibility then? And that really began to shift my understanding of what working with the plants is about, that when the plants are giving this gift of their bodies and their lives and their teachings to us, we have a responsibility to work with that gift in a way that serves the world in which they can live fully, which is also the world in which we can all live most fully as who we truly are but that doesn't always line up with what we think our agenda is and so there's a deeper listening and deeper reweaving that's required and i began working on the book at that time and then sort of hit a wall and i had been in touch with this publisher at the time and then i just sort of the book sort of disappeared i sort of disappeared Turned out there were more things I needed to live. I needed to confront some really big parts of shadow in my life. I also needed to go to Ireland and walk on my ancestral soils. Um, I needed to deepen my work and my magical tradition. And just a year before I began writing this again in earnest, came across um, I shouldn't say came across the teacher who would really help helped to deepen that in my life, Cornelia Benavides came into my life. And um, at a point when a whole lot of things were breaking open <laughs> and then I needed to be brought back to Maine. And about a month after I landed back in Maine, this editor, uh, Tim McKee at North Atlantic, who um, 
I had been in touch with all those years earlier, wrote to me and said, hey, uh, whatever happened to that book? <laughs> and I said, well, it's sort of been on the shelf, but maybe it's time again. And there are only a very few elements of the first bit that I worked on that survived into what uh, actually emerged. It was more kind of a placeholder. And um, at that, that point, I decided, okay, well, yes, I will, I'll write a proposal. And um, North Atlantic reviewed the proposal and thought the book sounded like a really good idea. And I began to work on it. And it was really interesting because I wrote the first bits right shortly after the proposal was accepted, or actually, and, and some of them as part of the proposal. And then um, life got busy and went through a whole lot more, including a pretty serious bout with COVID. And then suddenly the deadline was coming up and it was time to start writing again. And so much of the book got written in the final few weeks and turned out to be a very different book than I expected. A lot more ancestral voices, a lot more poetry and myth, a lot more diasporic Irishness in it than I had anticipated. But one of the truly fascinating things for me about that is that the cover of the book had actually been designed in the summer. And at the center of the cover of the book is the Triscala, the triple spiral, which is one of the oldest carvings found in Ireland, uh, found in many places, but particularly at uh, Siedenbroga, which in English is called Newgrange, the ancient burial mound that the light of the sun goes into at the winter solstice. And so that was on the cover of the book uh, against a green, green, green and blue background above a forest skyline. And the cover fit perfectly the book that actually got written. It wouldn't have fit the book that I thought I was writing as well. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny how those things happen sometimes, right? It's like you planted uh, these seeds years and years ago and turns out they needed some watering and some nourishing and, and tending to over the years. And, and then, you know, here you are years, years later and the fruits are, are now fruiting and abundant and it's out for the world and, and for all of us to enjoy and, and participate in and learn from as well. So um, I find that to be just really beautiful how it came together and <clears throat> like you said, there were some things that you needed to experience. And it sounds like those experiences were then able to, to channel through you and, and end up on the, on the paper and in the book when it was all said and done. And I love what you mentioned about how you came to this point in your life where there was so much going on, a lot of transition and change and that you just prayed to get lost. Um, I feel like those are really powerful words because many people might feel like in certain situations, like you mentioned that they are already lost and maybe they pray to get found. But I love your approach where you prayed to get lost because you knew that where, where you were, there was more to be discovered, more that you needed to 
experience or come into in order to take whatever the next steps were for you. Um, so I just love this idea of praying to get lost. And in another conversation I had recently with another podcast guest, she mentioned the need to fall apart so that we can be rebuilt or rebuild ourselves. And so I find it to be a sort of similar metaphor where sometimes we come to a point in our lives where we're not sure what the next step is, or we're not sure what we're doing with our lives. And so we come to this place of understanding and reckoning with ourselves. What, what is next? What do we do? And this idea of getting lost and being in the mystery and a part of the mystery and letting sort of surrendering, right? It's like a point of surrender where you just know that you you need this stillness and this listening. At least that's kind of what I'm getting from your story, that, that there was a greater, there was greater information coming in that you needed to find a spot to be in to receive. Would you, does this, is that kind of like where you were? Absolutely. So um, one of the central par point, parts in how I live is um, a teaching that was passed to my teacher Cornelia by her teacher, Victor Anderson, that is echoed in many traditions around the world. And it is that we have three aspects of ourselves and the aspect we're most familiar with and the aspect we prioritize in this culture is our human self that has a map of reality, that has an idea of how things are and who we are and how we're supposed to be. And that's an amazing part. Uh, it's the place that language emerges and so many of, of the really, truly amazing things our species can do come from that place. But when that part is left to run the show alone, um, those abstract maps can get imposed on our reality in a way that does violence to reality and to ourselves. And so when you think you know when you think you know where you've been going, that's part of one of those human maps. And when the human map isn't working, at first you can sort of try to make some course corrections, but at some point you need to recognize that um, Maybe, you're, maybe you have the wrong map. <laughs> and then the second aspect of us is the animal self that experiences the world in emotion and sensation and knows the animal that it is. And then the third aspect of us is our divine self, the part of us that knows our own infinity, which actually is not just theology, it's science that you know they every mo the molecules of air that we're breathing in and out connect us with all of life all of the water that's in our bodies has been part of so many other life forms the hydrogen contained in that water was formed in the first moments that energy cooled into matter at the beginning of the universe and so we are infinite in that way and that's something that our human selves can never fully grasp. If they tried to, they would be shattered. And so the animal self feels that in those moments when we most recognize beauty and awe in the world. And if what 
when that when our when who we are is in harmony the human self engages in a dance with the wild self who's in a dance with the divine self and that's where art and poetry and magic and healing arise and so it was having to allow the map to be redrawn by that kind of process that's a part of what happens but it's also really important that when we're breaking open and i know i said this before but in the world that we're in i feel like i need to say it again mm -hmm. that we pay attention to what we're orienting to and our wild self will recognize some of the difference and we can ask our divine self to help us know the difference between what is guiding us and what's leading astray and yes being broken apart is often necessary for us to come back together but it's also necessary that we be put back together in the right way we can be reassembled in all kinds of ways that's that's also a very good point absolutely um and so interesting you know this is such a common, um, not even really common, but it's actually been coming up for me a lot recently in some of the conversations that I've been having just around this need to, to break open. And it's almost kind of like taking something apart to see how it really works in the first place. But then, like you're saying, we have to figure out how to put it, put it back together. And, you know, it seems like some of that comes from intention and some of it comes from this connection with our divine selves, like you mentioned, um, which actually also came up recently in a podcast conversation um, with a friend who's down in Peru. And in Peru, they refer to it as the chispa divina, which is the mm -hmm. divine spark that, we, that. We, we all have within that, that carries with us um, throughout lifetimes and timelines and dimensions and realms. And um, you know, you also mentioned the the quote from Leonard Cohen, and and that made me again also think of the quote from Rumi, and and the same the same vein, just that the the wound is where the light enters, um, and as you mentioned, you know, if you have an open space, it can be filled with anything, right? So it can be filled with light, it can be filled with shadow, and um, having some sort of conscious awareness of that and then discernment around it feels especially important um, if we want to put things back in a particular way or with with a certain intention in mind so all very um important parts and um i also want to just kind of jump back a little bit to what you were saying about usnia and for people who aren't familiar with usnia it's a kind of lichen that is a medicinal lichen and it's also referred to as old man's beard or gray man's beard and so it's almost like these little tendrils and so i love how you spoke of usnia and and how it sort of came to you and was filling in these spaces and i could this imagery was just sort of filling my head of that exact thing happening of usnia sort of filling in the spaces and finding its way in and disseminating information, sharing information with you um, for you to sort of take in and digest and and get something out of it. And so, you know, I think that in this beautiful new book that you're sharing with the world, um, I love that it's coming from this rich place of ancestry and lineage and story and, and melding all these different pieces together to remind us of our original connections with ourselves and with the world around us and with this 
kind of concept of animism, which is that everything is alive and sentient in its own way. And that means that we're always interacting with everything around us, right? And so we get to choose what those interactions look like and what they feel like. And I think a lot of that has to do with just having the awareness to begin with. Um, and also for a lot of people, this may be a really new subject to them. So I wonder if there might be a few little tips or tidbits that you would want to pull from your writings um, or just sort of the knowledge in your head. If people are just now starting to make these connections, what's a good way for them to begin that process? I feel like trees are such profound teachers. And actually, um, the word, the modern word druid derives from um, the ancient Irish word dray, which uh, refers to a certain kind of priest, but also echoes the dare, the name of the oak, and the idea that the trees, in particular the oak and the yew in the Irish tradition, are some of the oldest and deepest teachers. And um, yeah, animism, this experience of the world being alive. Um, I think about the way that most of us are aware that there are people who, who experience the world this way. We generally tend to be most familiar of it, with it in the context of indigenous cultures. Um, and in many ways, so much of the violence that was done to indigenous cultures and is being done to indigenous cultures was and is done because this is this way of being, this way of feeling, this way of living is a threat to the order that's trying to be imposed. Mm -hmm. And I was struck by um, this will write, <laughs> this will spiral to a few concrete things, I promise. I was struck by um, the way in which you know, all of us are descended from indigenous animist people somewhere in our lineage. And uh, someone whose writing was a great inspiration for me was the late Irish animist philosopher, John Moriarty. And he, uh, he grew up in, uh, in Kerry in the west of Ireland, not far from where my people come from. And then he ended up teaching in a university in Manitoba and getting to know indigenous people in Canada and seeing and experiencing their ways of living and seeing and being. He began to realize what was missing in his life. And he went back to Ireland uh, to first to the Gwaeltacht of Connemara. The Gwaeltachts are the areas where the language is still spoken. And then later back to Kerry. And um, he gained some really profound insights there. And one of them is about language and about the ways that we use language differently in an animist context or a non-animist context. And he said that with the Irish language, he said to learn to speak is to learn to say that our river has its source in a well in the other world. 
and that everything we might say about the hills and about the stars is a way of saying there are nine hazels that grow over the river and the other world where that grow over the well and the other world where our river has its source. And he spoke about how fundamentally different language is when it's that language of evoking and invoking and conjuring and mapping relationship than it is when, when it's the language of commerce. Mm. And I also find that with language, there are echoes. So the way we inhabit our bodies, um, sound moves through us when we hear it, sound moves through us when we produce it. Some of my earliest memories of feeling ancestral connection come from hearing the baron, the Irish frame drum being played and recognizing that rhythm as a rhythm that my heart already knew. But um, I found that this is true of language as well. And there's so much being spoken now of inherited trauma, which is very real and very important and needs to be addressed and resolved. But we also inherit beauty, we inherit connection, we inherit hope, all of those rewrite our genetics as well and get passed down as well. And I found that um, there's something about language, especially when the language has been taken from people. Uh, we're learning right now, of course, so many of the painful realities that we should have already known, that indigenous people already knew about the residential schools in North America and stripping children, taking children away from their families to take, the, take away their language and their culture, which were their way of connecting with the world. And several years ago, the first time I was working with survivors of the residential schools and children and grandchildren of survivors of the residential schools in my practice. Um, someone who had done a lot more work in that realm, um, who was of both indigenous and Scottish ancestry said to me, well, you know where this all began? I said, no. And she said, they did this first in Ireland and Scotland and they found that it was such an effective way of instituting control that when the British came to North America, they imposed that same system there. And mm -hmm. so, you know, in my lineage, there was a great, great grandmother who once she came here, never spoke a word of English, even though her eldest son was the only one, and his wife were the only ones in her life who could speak Irish. Um, but, and, the language at the time that she was living in her homeland was outlawed. And she had a um, she had a grandmother who had been punished, who had been jailed for um, for speaking curses in Irish to in the presence of British troops. And so learning that, uh, first of all, allowed me to come to a relationship of not saying that my family experiences the same suffering as indigenous families, but instead of being from this distancing place of charity and pity, being in the, oh, okay, yep, 
this happened in a different way in my lineage and it's from that place we can remember. But it's also through the, those languages that we can remember older things. And when I first went to Ireland, I burst into tears as I was leaving the airport and I started seeing the bilingual signs and the fact that this language that my great grandparents were punished for speaking was now officially allowed again. I think learning a whole language is really wonderful and really hard. And I'm just a very, very short way down that path. But even when we can learn just a few words or just a few songs, um, the way in which they resonate in our bodies, I feel awakens some of those inherited memories and brings us into a different kind of connection. And so one of the things I recommend in my book is uh, the Christian mystic Meister Eckhart said, if I only pray one prayer in my life, let it be thank you. Mm -hmm. And so learning to say thank you in ancestral language, but also learning what it literally means. So in Irish, it's Garav uh, which is may goodness come toward you. Mm. Beautiful. And so welcoming that flow of blessing in that way. But I started off speaking about trees in this way, and I'll say that the other core practice that I find is so important for people to begin with is remember your love of trees. All, no matter how urban the place that you are is, somewhere that you can have relatively easy access to in your daily life, there, is, there are trees find a tree, even if it's a single tree growing out of the sidewalk that speaks to you, and make a relationship with that tree. Go and be with that tree, even if it's just a couple of minutes every day, but be with that tree and really bring your attention to it and watch the way so that attention begins shifting your experience of the world. Mm. I love that so much. Thank you. Um, it's interesting how once you begin to notice the plants around you, even if you just start with one tree, how it changes something within you, right? You feel something different. And we can't always speak words to that because like you said, language is, I mean, I think language is so fascinating. And I, with English being my first language and the language that I've grown up with, American English, there's a lot about the, the English language that I appreciate. I'm kind of a word person and I like that a lot, but the more that I learn about indigenous cultures and languages, the more mesmerized I am by how detailed they can be. Yeah. And I remember listening to a podcast a few years back in which Robin, um, Robin Wall Kimmerer, is that her name? Yeah. Um, she wrote Braiding Sweetgrass and she was being interviewed. And she mentioned that in her native language, there was a word for the sound a mushroom makes when it opens. Um, mm. Maybe it was overnight. I may not be getting that you know, exactly correct. So um, apologies for, for that. But I just remember hearing her mention that there was a, a word for this sound of just one thing happening in space and time. And it, it blew me away uh, you know, the English language, just there's, there's no way to account for such a seemingly small 
happening in time, but also it was important enough that, you know, to, to this culture that she comes from, to this Native American tribe, that there was, that there was a word for that. And even just you speaking, um, or translating for us what thank you is in, in the Irish or Gaelic, it's, it's Gaelic, right? Gaelic language or? Well, Gaelic refers both to the Irish and the Scottish variants, which were once upon a time the same language. In, okay. in the language, it's called Gaelga. <laughs> okay. Yeah, so that so that's um that's also new information to me. So thank you for that. Um, but I just love that that it tra the translation there is so much more encompassing than just two words, thank you, you know, which we have this kind of succinct definition for, and it's very resolute. Um, but also I've spent a, a fair amount of time in Peru, and one of the native languages there is called Quechua. And yeah. they have an expression that they use. There's many different ways to express gratitude and thanks, which I love that there's all these different ways. But one of them literally translates to doves fly from my heart or with doves oh. in my heart. And just the imagery that is a, so, that comes up for me with that and, and the sincerity of it, you know, you're not just saying words. It's this whole bouquet of emotion and gratitude and I just find it to be so beautiful. So I really appreciate you speaking to languages and, and there there's so much that can be conveyed in language and in communication, but there's also so much that can get lost along the way. If it's not conveyed in a, in such a way that it it's really um, taking all of that into account, if that makes sense. Um, so I just Absolutely. really love that you mentioned that. Um, yeah, and there's some beautiful work going on with that in the Irish language right now. Uh, it's, a, it's kind of a whole burgeoning movement, but probably the voice that's most prominent is uh, Moncal Magan, who is a journalist who grew up spending most of the year in Dublin speaking English and his summers in Kerry speaking Irish, and then became a world traveler became really interested in indigenous cultures and other places seemed to have this story theme coming back and then came <laughs> home and became really interested in the Irish language. And he's written a book um, that's growing in popularity called 32 Words for Field. And what he talks about in that book is the fact that even though the language in some ways has been prevented from the death that people feared it would have, there are aspects of the language that are being lost because they refer to parts of everyday life that people are no longer living in the same way. And so he and others are trying to gather some of those words. And one of the concepts he has, which he organizes another book around, um, another book he has is called Si Tamagotchi. And if you remember the Tamagotchis, they were those little electronic pets Right. <laughs> yeah. take care of. And he uh, has, re has given the word a new meaning by saying he, he makes this practice of giving people the word and saying, you are now the caretaker of this word. You have to keep this word alive. And I love that because even if you don't have time to learn a whole language, if you can find one of those words that refers to a way of being and a way of knowing that's in danger of falling out of the world 
and you can become the caretaker who nourishes and breathes life into that word, something stays alive in the world. Mm, I love that so much. What a beautiful gift to, to receive, um, you know, this sort of responsibility in some ways, but, um, I really love that idea of being, being a caretaker of a word. And, and just again, because I have spent a lot of time in Peru working with some teachers down there, um, they've taught me some Quechua words and it's always an honor to learn a new word in Quechua. Um, and, you know, there's always sort of this kind of like, is it okay for me to use this word? You know, I'm clearly not of Peruvian lineage or background in this lifetime. And my teachers have asked me to, to work with these words because they do carry a certain frequency and energy and vibration that has meaning and that has purpose. And, um, you know, I've heard other people talk about how whenever we use words, we're spelling, right? Mm -hmm. um, and if we really break that down, what does it mean to spell? Well, you know, there's magic inherent within that. So whatever we say, the, the thought forms that go into words that we put out into the world, they have a vibration and an energy and an effect. And the more awareness we can have around that, the more conscious we can be of how we're working with those words and with the languages and um, to carry on that tradition somehow or another, you know, we do see in a lot of indigenous cultures, a lot of these words um, uh, or languages being kind of falling apart in some ways. And, and it is a responsibility and an honor, I would imagine for many people to find a way to carry these traditions through time as we continue forward in, in this evolution. And, um, you know, just the richness, because we see sort of this division where especially um, a lot of the young people are wanting to go out and do different things in the world and mm -hmm. be more a part of this sort of technological culture and all of these advances, um, so to speak, that have been, that have come about over time and, and especially in more recent years. Um, but also that, you know, for us to notice the importance of keeping these traditions and cultures alive, because before these things were taken away from many, many indigenous cultures um, throughout the world, you know, these are the keepers of wisdom. These are the wisdom keepers of the teachings of the ages and um, not just of the times that they may have originated in, but there's, there's just so much more um, that's inherent within all of that. So I think that that's a really important point and one that's, um, you know, that's worth paying attention to as we move forward and, and learn more about where we're going next and, and make these decisions that we may be coming to. So I love that. And I'm really interested. I believe you said that this man's name was John Moriarty. Is that right? Uh, John Moriarty was the philosopher. And then the one writing about language is Mankan Magan. Okay. I might have to get that spelling from you afterwards. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, and I'm 30, really interested uh, to check that out. Yeah. Uh, uh, Magan's uh, best known, known known book is 32 Words for Field. It's often words. easier to find him, but I'm glad to give you spellings as well. Yeah. Okay, great. Yeah, I'm really interested to check that out. Um, 
Oh, well, thank you so much, Sean. I'm really enjoying this conversation. And um, I was mentioning to you before we started recording that I just now have started to dig into your book um, and just the way that it's written. It, it feels very magical and eloquent to me. And, and just sort of reading the first few pages, I feel like I've opened some sort of magical book that I found in, you know, some ancient well or an attic that was put away for, for someone to discover in the future or something like that. So it feels there's just a certain air about it that I'm already enjoying. And I'm only like, 15 or 20 pages in so far. So I'm really looking forward to diving deeper and just taking the time to sit with that and, and the prose and the poetry and everything else that you've instilled in this. And um, if, if other people would like to learn more about your offerings and what you're up to in the world, or if they want to find your book, what's a good place for them to find you or connect with you? My website is, it's actually a Moriarty reference, um, but also an older Irish reference is otherworldwell.com. Otherworldwell.com. Beautiful. And I will make sure that that is connected in the show notes. And can people buy your book through that site as well? Absolutely. And, but, and they also can order it through their local independent bookstores. Um, the, that pretty much every bookstore has a relationship with a distributor that carries it. And so if you want to support a local business, keeping books alive, that's a great way to do it. And you can also find, um, I've, I teach, I've taught some online classes for the Matthew Wood Institute of Herbalism. And so you can also find some of my work through them. Beautiful. Um, well, thank you so much for sharing that. I love the work of, of Matthew Wood and, and his book. Um, the Book of Herbal Wisdom was one of the very first herb books I ever purchased before I really knew anything about herbalism. And to this day, I kind of consider it my herbal Bible because it's just it's just that amazing and brilliant. So I love that, that the two of you have done so much work together and um, and yeah, just really beautiful. So we'll have people check out your website and your offerings and your beautiful new book. Thank you so much for putting that out into the world. Again, it just feels like divine timing and something that we could all really benefit from um, with where we are in, in our evolution and, and process right now. So thank you, Sean. Um, there's one more question that I want to ask you before we part ways today. And that's something that I ask all of my podcast guests. And that is, what is nourishing you in this moment on any level? Hmm. I would say my relationship with the place that I am. I live on a beautiful little cove of a lake in that same transcontinental mountain chain that my ancestors lived on. And I go out paddling in my kayak at twilight and in particular, uh, I've developed a relationship with the pair of loons that come back to uh, this particular cove every year and love being with them and their voice that sounds like it's from the other world um, calls me back to myself over and over again through the day when I hear it echoing, but especially when I'm out paddling with them. And I've actually begun referring to them by a new name. Um, Loon didn't feel quite right, 
but I also didn't feel like I had a right to their Wabanaki name. But their Wabanaki name translates to spirit bird. And so I began calling, began calling them Inanama, which is Irish for bird of the spirit. And they seem to like that name. Oh, beautiful. I love that. Um, sounds like a really beautiful place where you are and, and just super magical that you have this inherent connection with the land that you're living on and that you're able to get out and, and tend to that connection and that relationship on a daily basis. And I can definitely say that having a relationship with where you live makes a huge difference. Um, the place that I'm in now, I've only been in for almost a year and a half now. And um, it is in some ways the land of some of my ancestors. Um, I do have a, a little bit of ancestry in the Cherokee lineage. Um, some of my ancestors were on some of the roles um, back in the day, but also being here in Appalachia and having these mountains, like you say, be the same mountain range that connects under the sea and across the pond, so to speak, uh, to the other parts where my ancestry comes from, from England and Scotland and Ireland. And I remember the first time I heard that, that it was indeed the sound, the same mountain chain, um, it, it, just blew my mind. <laughs> mm -hmm. I had no idea that that was even a possibility and that it's um, one of the oldest mountain chains in the world, if not the oldest. And so I think that there's a lot, a lot to be said for that, um, which could be an entirely other podcast. Um, so yeah, so thank you so much, Sean, for being here today and for sharing your story and, and just weaving in all of this, this richness and um, your, your lineage and your background and what's important to you. And I know that it will speak to anyone who, who opens the pages. And so wishing you the best with all that. And thank you again for being here today. It's been a real pleasure chatting with you. Thank you so much for having me for this beautiful conversation and for all that you're doing to help bring ideas and voices into the world. Absolutely. Fun. It's an honor. Thank you, Sean. And uh, hopefully we'll, we'll cross paths again soon one day, maybe at another herbal yeah. conference. I look forward to it. Beautiful. Take care. You too. Bye. Thank you for listening to Sage and Spirit. You can download more episodes and subscribe to this podcast on your favorite podcast platform, such as Apple or Google Podcasts. For more show notes and guest information, visit dancingsagewellness.com. Until next time, take care and be well.